You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Genesis 34, as we continue in our study of the book of Genesis, we'll read the chapter in its entirety this morning. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the woman of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Amor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, and he lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamer spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall, you shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman, the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you and that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people." When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Amor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all of the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem 
with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, and all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Heavenly Father, we look to you, O Lord, to be our teacher and guide in this difficult text. O Father, and we pray, O Father, that, Lord, you would instruct us and make application in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I could say jokingly this morning, would anyone mind if we went to chapter 35? <laughs> you know, um, all kidding aside, what do, you do with, what do you do with Genesis 34? What do you do with this text? Um, well, actually, you know, when you begin to study this text, and I, I have to say that if we were preaching topically and really, you know, each week maybe looking at something different in the Scriptures, I don't think we would ever preach on Genesis 34. I just don't think we ever would, and nor do I think we would really ever study it. I think we might read it, perhaps we come to it, if we're reading through the Bible on a reading plan or something, we come to it one morning, we read it, we scratch our heads, we move on to the next entry in our reading plan. That's pretty much what we do, isn't it? Uh, what do we do with this passage of Scripture? Well, having studied this, and really having spent a lot of time in it, and that's one of the things I like about preaching through the books, is you, you come to texts like these, and well, guess what? We finished chapter 33 last week. You'd seem a little strange if we went straight to 35, wouldn't you? And some of you might say, hey, what about 34? <laughs> um, well, what about 34? When we begin to study chapter 34, believe it or not, there's a tremendous amount of material in here for parenting. I'm overwhelmed by how much parenting information there is in Genesis 34. And the, the problem is it's all negative. And what do I mean by that? It's what not to do. So um, obviously a message on uh, Genesis 34 might sound a bit negative for that reason. Uh, the message should fall in line with the passage. Amen. Uh, it's largely what not to do. That's certainly not the overarching. I don't think that's the main theme of it. A lesson. I don't think... We've been given Genesis 34 explicitly so that we could get a lesson in parenting. Uh, but we do get a lesson in parenting, as you're going to see. Now, um, our scripture memory verse this morning, you might think, is odd. It's not in uh, chapter 34. I, I quite frankly couldn't find a verse in chapter 34 that, that I would suggest as a scripture memory verse this morning um, because I couldn't find a verse in there that I think would encapture the whole thing. I toyed around with verse 31, which we'll get to here in a few minutes. But I think we begin to see the genesis, if you will, of the problem as we get back a little bit in the context, uh, namely back to verse 18 of Genesis 33. So I'd like to begin there. And uh, there we read these words, and Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Now, when we read those words, 
we should immediately rejoice. And in fact, it might even be time for everybody just to clap. And now, why would I say that? Well, you'll recall back in Genesis 28, in fact, turn there with me, I've made many references to Genesis 28 and verse 15. But if you go back there now in Genesis 28, it's 20 years earlier. And Jacob is now fleeing really from his father's house for two reasons. One is to go and find a wife. But secondly, uh, to get away from Esau, who's threatening to kill him. And he wanders off into uh, uh, Luz, which will be renamed Bethel. And it's there where he has his vision of the stairway, you know, from earth up to heaven. And in that vision, the Lord speaks to him, reiterates the covenant that he had made with Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. And in verse 15, he says to Jacob, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So when we get back to Genesis 33, 20 years have gone by. Jacob has a wife. Actually, Jacob has become very prosperous. And here we are in verse 18, and we read, And Jacob came safely to the land of Canaan. And for that, we, 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 we clap. The Lord has made good on his promise. And it's good for us to seal this because this is faith-strengthening stuff here. God had promised Jacob that he would be with him. And here we see... God made good on his promise. God always makes good on his promises. And as we see God blessing and making good on his promises, we can be strengthened to know that he's going to make good on all the other promises, those of which have yet to be fulfilled. So this is faith-strengthening stuff here. Now, that uh, is the high point of the verse, but there's a low point to the verse. And what is the low point to the verse? What is Jacob doing in Shechem? Shouldn't he be going back to Bethel, to the house of God? Bethel means house of God. That's where he made his vows. And that is later where the Lord will redirect him in chapter 35. So we got to ask ourselves, what is Jacob doing in Shechem? And notice, well, first of all, if we lived in this time, we'd say, well, Shechem, that's a pretty wealthy joint. That's a pretty, pretty wealthy place. There's a lot of commerce in Shechem. There's a lot of action in Shechem. The pastures are very green in Shechem. And if you look at the uh, latter part, or the last part of verse 18, we're told that Jacob camped before the city. Now, this may remind us of something. Some of us who've been in this study for a long time, if you can think all the way back to Genesis 13, which was quite a while ago. But there, Abraham and Lot have to separate, don't they? And Lot... Abraham says a lot. He gives him first dibs. He says, you, you, you go your direction and I'll go the other direction. And Lot looks up and sees the beautiful fertile land down near Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does he do? He heads that direction. And he camps before the city of Sodom. And we know how that works out for Lot and especially for his family. How does that ultimately work out for his family? It's devastating to his family. And it's not long before Lot is actually living in the city. 
And we see this kind of thing going on with Jacob. Jacob camps before the city in verse 18, and then in verse 19, we're introduced to two characters who are going to play a large role in our story in Genesis 34, namely Hamor and Shechem. We're told that from the sons of Hamor and Shechem, uh, or the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father rather, Jacob buys for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. So he bought some property near Shechem. Now, I finished last week's message with verse 20 on a high point. There he erected an altar and called it Elohe Israel. Uh, Jacob is on to the right thing. He's worshiping and praising God. What could be wrong with that? What's wrong with that is Jacob is obeying God, but he's only halfway obeying God, isn't he? It's an impartial obedience, isn't it? I think we all know what that's about. I don't have to do Do you need me to develop that? Unfortunately, you probably don't need me to develop that, do you? In fact, I think I could develop that just by saying what I've just said. We know what this half-hearted obedience is like. did, Did we do it? Well, technically, yeah, he's in the land of Canaan. Is he in the land of Canaan where he belongs? No. Because he's got one eye on the world and another one on God's promises. And before we condemn him, before we condemn him, let's take a good look in the mirror. That's what Ricky needs to do. Now, this is not going to go very well. It's not going to go very well at all. If we look at verse 1 of chapter 34, there we see that Dinah, you remember Dinah, it's Leah's last child, she bears Jacob. Jacob's daughter. She went out to see the women of the land. Now, Dinah at this point in time is probably between 12 and 14 years old. And um, we have to wonder, okay, what is she doing wandering around in the land at 12 or 14 years of age in a land that is known for its sexual immorality? It's a pagan land. Where is her chaperone? Here we see that Dinah has a lot of liberties here, the liberties that she probably shouldn't have at her age. And we might ask, where's Jacob? This is dangerous. This is really dangerous. And in verse 2, what happens? Well, when Shechem the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, when he saw her, what did he do? He seized her, and he had his way with her. It's tragedy. It's just absolute tragedy. And the the twisted thing here, I mean the twist, I'll just say the twist to it is in verse 3, Shechem actually falls in love with her. We're told that his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, that he loved the young woman. He spoke tenderly to her. So in verse 4, Shechem speaks to his father Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Notice the the reading of that. Get me this girl for my wife. I think we learn a lot about Shechem right here. What is Shechem like? He's a prince. He's a little prince. He does whatever he wants. 
with little consequence. And he's used to getting whatever he wants. Now, someone might say, well, Rick, when you put it that way, it sounds like it could have been written yesterday. Well, it sure does, doesn't it? It's not going to be hard to find a Shechem in our culture. Someone who's used to doing whatever they want with little consequence and getting whatever they want and getting it immediately. Get me this girl for my wife. Now, does he love her? Yeah, he lo- yeah it's, it's pretty clear here, and we'll see from his activities afterwards that he does love her. Now, in verse 5, what takes place after that? Well, Jacob, he- Jacob hears what has happened to Dinah, and we're told that his sons were tending the fields. We're told that Jacob held his peace at the end of verse 5. And then Hamor, the father of Shechem, comes out to speak with Jacob. And now in verse 7, we don't know how, but the sons of Jacob, they come in from the field, they hear of it, and notice the reaction of the sons of Jacob in verse 7. They're indignant. They're very angry. Do they have a right to be angry? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there really are two types of anger. You know, I mentioned counseling earlier. You know, a lot of times, you know, I've counseled people with anger management issues. And, you know, sometimes we're angry about things we shouldn't be angry about. And we're not angry about things we should. That's a problem. Another problem is we need to make a distinction. Anger in and of itself is not sinful. There is this thing called righteous anger. The problem is because of our sinful hearts, because of the remnant of sin that continues to dwell in the believer, our anger generally is tempered with what we call carnal anger, and it's rage. And undoubtedly, there's a a pretty decent element of that here going on in verse 7. We can understand their anger. They're furious. Now in verse 8, Hamor, the diplomat, he, he speaks with them. And he says, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. And we're thinking, wait a second. Now, has Shechem even been rebuked? Has he, I mean, has there been any, any rebuke at all? Any correction? Please give her to him to be his wife. And then in verse 9, he tempts them. There's a, there's, this, verses 9 and 10 are very serious here. Very serious. Look at the temptation. Look what Hamor proposes. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. Take your daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. I think this guy's a great salesman, quite frankly. Why would he make this proposal? There's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons I can't help but to think, the more I study this, I can't help but to think that Hamor can see that Jacob has eyes to the place. You know, he's got an eye to the place. You know, he bought some property of us. He's into this place. Let's integrate him in. We integrate him in, we'll smooth this thing over. That's what it looks like to me is happening here. You can almost see it in a movie, you know, we're in a back room somewhere. They're saying, well, I I, I I, I think I got an angle with old Jacob. I think, well, you know, we offer the place to him. I think we smooth this thing right over. We'll get you the girl. I think that's what's happening here. But what's at stake here? What's at stake here is the assimilation of the people of God into the Canaanites. 
The people of God are always to be distinct. They're always to be distinct and distinctive. Now, what can happen here? What can happen here? Well, what can happen here is the people of God can be swallowed up if this temptation is taken. Now, at this point, Shechem chimes in, and he says to Jacob and to Dinah's brothers, he says, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. And ask for me a great bride price and a gift, as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I'll give whatever you say to me, only give me the young woman to be my wife. Now, what is Shechem's heart right here? Is Shechem repenting? I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, it's, we can't know. I mean, how do we know the answer to that? But what he is, he's, he's, he is offering a bride price here. He, he's offering the gift. He's going through these motions that are typical. How does Jacob answer? Anyone. He doesn't, does he? The sons of Jacob answer. What do they say? Well, they answered deceitfully, first of all. They got a reason for it. They defiled their sister, Dinah. And we can, you know, you can, under, you can understand, I mean, where they're coming from. Here's this little snot that does whatever he wants, gets away with whatever he wants. It looks like he's going to try to get away with this. We're going to show him. You can see that, couldn't you? I'm not, I'm not um, defending this in any way. There's nothing in this whole chapter to be defended. There's nothing straight, and there's no good party in this whole thing. It's all messed up. They say to him, we, we cannot do this thing, verse 14, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. They're right in that. Why are they right in that? Because she would be unequally yoked. I mean, this is, the, this is what Esau does, isn't it? He marries the Canaanite daughters. This is the whole point in Jacob going back to his kinsmen, right? They can't. What, what is the problem with being unequally yoked? The problem principally, principally and chiefly with being unequally yoked is these Canaanites serve different gods. They serve other gods. And that party, the party, whether it be he or whether it be she, if they're serving other gods, they're going to lead the believing party astray. But even that having been said, even that having been said, you don't want to do it anyways. Because the most intimate, the, 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 the true intimacy in a marriage is not the physical union of a marriage. It's having Christ between you. That's it. And, 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 and you know, this is, a, this is tough. This is really tough stuff. You know, I've been there. I've been there. You know, a young woman or a young man comes, and that's not always old, not always a young woman or a young man. I'll tell you what often happens. They come, and they, they've, you know, they've got the hots for somebody. And this is what they'll say. You know, yeah, such and such, you know, I've been dating such and such, and going on, and, you know, and, uh, yeah, you know, and, and um, I'll say, well, what about their faith? You know, what's their, you know, they made a profession of faith. Well, they're really into the Bible. You know, they're really into the Bible, and uh, I've been talking with them about the Bible. And, uh, you know, I'm like, okay, wait a second. Have they made a profession of faith? Well, I think they're on their way. Have they made a profession of faith? 
You know, most of the time when, as a pastor, when I find myself in that place, oftentimes that person is about to leave the church. They're already about to leave the church. And I don't know that, I don't know that I've ever counseled somebody and they've stayed where I've said, listen, this person's off limits for you. Until such time as they make a profession of faith. But even if they make a profession of faith, you've been walking with God for a while. You have a certain level of maturity. You've got to understand they're a baby. They need time to mature. You two aren't going to be able to come together for a little while. That's an unpopular message, by the way. But it's such an important one. It's not what we want to hear. But it is so very, very important. They're right. The, the Canaanites are uns, they're uncircumcised. We cannot do this thing, verse 14, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. Verse 15, only on this condition will we agree with you. This gets ugly now. That you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. Okay, can they become the people of God simply by going through the external rite of circumcision with no explanation as to what circumcision is about? Circumcision in this dispensation is playing the role that baptism would play in our current dispensation. It's the putting off of sin. It's regeneration. Becoming the people of God. It's entered in trust and faith. Simply going through the right circumcision isn't going to make a person the people of God any more than dousing water on them is. Follow me? Hoping for heads all going like this. Now, what's going on here is really ugly. What they're using, they're using the sacred sign of the covenant in order to deceive. This is really sacrilegious, isn't it? This is bad. In verse 17, though, verse 17 is kind of interesting. They say in verse 17, if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. They say they're going to take our daughter. Okay, they're just referring to their sister as our daughter. Actually, they're playing the role of the parent right now because Jacob is standing there silent. But let's ask this question. Where's Dinah? You know, you can read this passage and forget about Dinah, can't you? That's amazing how you can do that. She's the one that's been violated. Where is she? It appears that Shechem has her at his house. She's at his house. That sheds a little bit of light on Simeon and Levi's actions in a few that we'll see here in a few minutes. Again, I'm not condoning these actions. Just trying to explain what's going on. Now, in verse 18, Hamor and Shechem, they, they, they're pleased by what they hear. Um, Shechem is excited. He doesn't delay. He goes right off to the uh, city gate. We're told he's the most honored of Hamor's sons. And Hamor and Shechem begin selling this thing at the city gate. In verse 21, they say, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. You see what's going on here? Satanic. 
They're being, it's an attempt to assimilate the people of God into the people of Canaan. Now in verse 22, they begin to sell this idea. What do they got to sell? This is a tough sell. What are they going to sell? They're trying to talk all the males in the whole city to undergo this painful surgical procedure. Now, I think these guys are salesmen, man. I think they're salesmen big time. They say in verse 22, only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised, as they are all circumcised. I think we can hear the crowd go, oh, yeah. Oh. Well, that's expected and anticipated. All right, we've got to sweeten this thing up. One way to sweeten it up is to appeal to the pocketbook. One way to sweeten it up is to appeal to the pocketbook. Why does the pocketbook come up so much in politics? Because that's how you sweeten the bill of goods, is with the pocketbook. These guys are politicians. Verse 23, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Look at the potential we have here. Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. Then verse 24, all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city sold. Now, verse 25, on the third day, when they were sore, two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their sword and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of, and notice that in verse 26, they took Dinah out of Shechem's house. It appears to me from this text that Dinah has been in Shechem's house this whole time, doesn't it? It is possible that she's coming and going, but it appears that she's been there. And we have to ask this question, is she being there of her own will or is she being held? The language seems to suggest she may have been being held there. I don't know the answer to that. Verse 27, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, Whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, their wives, all that was in it, the houses they captured and plundered. Disgraceful. Jacob finally speaks in verse 30. said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Does Jacob have a point? Sure. But notice the pronouns. Have you noticed the pronouns? You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Whoa. Whoa. It's almost all about Jacob, isn't it? How do they respond? How do the brothers respond? This question hangs out here. It's so interesting. They say, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? I almost made that our scripture memory verse this morning. You know, it's hanging out there, isn't it? And it doesn't get answered. 
Read Genesis 35. Really, in studying this this week, I was saying to myself, Lord, I wish you'd have given us verse 32 and 33 and like spoke to this question. I would have liked that a lot. It hangs out there, doesn't it? We could ask this question, is Shechem treating Dinah like a prostitute? I don't think we can answer that question because it would appeal to Shechem's heart. He has fallen in love with her. He has violated her for sure, but he has fallen in love with her. It's twisted. It's messed up. But is he treating her like a prostitute when he comes and he wants to give a bride price for her? Is he doing that? I don't know. That's that's up for debate. But let's look at the question another way. What should they do? What should Jacob do? What should the brothers do? What should anyone do in the wake of this? What do you do with this? Well, we see that we have a couple of responses here. We have, for one, we have act like it didn't happen, kind of. That's what Jacob is doing, isn't it? He's kind of holding his peace. Was he ever going to do anything? I mean, as a father, I'm thinking that first order of business is find out where Dinah is, get her home now. As fathers, it's the way we got to be. Isn't it? Being a father is hard, isn't it? You have to do a lot of unpopular things. Here, Dinah, she's really, she's got all these liberties, you know. She's running around. And, you know, I mentioned uh, last week I talked about uh, Jim and Brian and I being at Starbucks in Beaver. You know, we had a break in at Synod and, and I told Tammy about it. I, I, you know, we're sitting. I don't know if Brian and Jim noticed. I'm sure they noticed it. They didn't, we didn't say anything. We didn't talk about it. But we're sitting at this table, and it was just the weather was gorgeous, and, you know, it was so nice, and there was a lot of youngsters running around. And there was a girl that sat at a table next to us, and she couldn't have been more than 13 or 14 years old, and she's wearing a bikini. She had a white top on over it, but you could see through the top. She had a bikini top on, and all she had on was bikini bottoms, and she's running around Beaver. She had another girl with her who was dressed a little better than that, but not much. Now, perhaps, you know, her parents are probably at work, and maybe they don't know where she is, but too often is the case. Too often is the case. Too often is the case where the parents do know these kids are dressing like this and running around. You know, listen, I've been there. I've had to... I've had to I've had to say, listen, where do you think you're going? You're going to get a protest about that. I can tell you right now. You're not going to be like, you're not going to be like real popular when you say, you get back in your room and you try that again. Well, I don't want to. Well, then you get in your room and you stay there. I'm not suggesting you change those clothes. I'm demanding that you change those clothes or you're not going anywhere. No means no. That's what it means when I look it up in the dictionary. What does no mean? It means no. You go in, you change those clothes or you're not going anywhere. The decision is yours, not mine. 
It's unpopular. It's unpopular. But there she goes. She's, she's, she's out there unchaperoned, walking around in a dangerous world. Doesn't understand that world. She falls into this thing. Where is Jacob at in this? I think I would want to know where Dinah was. It doesn't seem to me that the first order of business, where's Dinah? Let's find her. Let's hug her. Let's love her. We don't see that in the text, do we? Jacob is kind of like acting like it didn't happen. How about rage? Is that the answer? Righteous anger. I made that distinction earlier because I want you to understand anger is warranted here. Righteous anger. Carnal anger is never warranted. The Lord gets angry, but His anger is not a carnal anger. It's a righteous anger. Being angry does not necessarily constitute sin. There are things that we should be angry about. The violation of a daughter would be one of them. In fact, us as the people of God should be angry as we read this story because this happened to a sister. But carnal rage is not the answer, nor is deceit. Is there ever a time where deceit is the answer? No. Jesus solves the biggest problem that we have, and he does it without deceit. There isn't any deceit in Jesus in any way, is there? Deceit is not the answer. What about retaliation? This one for me is the tough one. I'd want to break his legs. That's what I would be wanting to do, is break his legs. That, that just, that's me. I mean, that's what I would want to do is break his legs. Is that the answer? No. It's not the answer. Well, what is the answer? I mean, what is the answer? Well, quite, quite frankly, where is God? If you noticed, I wanted to go through each verse like I've done a second time. And we've read it once. We've went through it verse by verse again, practically. And where is God mentioned? <laughs> Not one time. Does that mean that God isn't involved? No. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, but it's all about God. And this is, we're going to, especially we're going to see in, in Genesis 35 and following, we're going to see, oh, God is very present here, but he's been pushed away. I think it makes sense that God is not, I, 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 this is just me. This is just my opinion. You take this for what you want. But I think it makes sense. The reason God is not mentioned, I think it's this reason. And for this, we can be sure. If you're going to forsake your responsibility, you're only going to forsake responsibility as you push God out of the way. You know, when you get up and you know there's something you should be doing and you're not tending to it. Okay, you have to push God away in a sense in order to forsake that, respect, that, that responsibility, don't you? You have to push him away to do that. You also have to push him away whenever you're angry in a carnal way. You've already pushed him away. You have to do that whenever you retaliate or when you deceive. You always have to push God away whenever you, we, we respond in all these ways. Where is God? Well, a lot of times we wake up after we've done it, and then what do we do? Immediately, we repent. But where was God in the moments when we were acting? We had pushed him away. God is being pushed away. He's very much here. He's very much present. But he's being pushed away. So what is the answer? I think Habakkuk, actually, is, as I was thinking about how to answer this question, 
I kept thinking about Habakkuk, and perhaps Habakkuk is not a prophecy that we're real familiar with. You, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to turn there and you're using the church's Bible, Habakkuk is on page uh, 785, I think is what I wrote down, 785. But Habakkuk is prophesying at a time that probably between 600 and 605 B.C., and he's prophesying at a time when the people of God are apostate all over the place. They're not following the covenant. Uh, this is going on down in Judah. Israel has already been carried away and plundered by the Assyrians. And, but the two tribes down in Judah, they're still intact. Jerusalem is still intact. And Habakkuk lifts a complaint to God in verse 2. He says to the Lord, How long shall I cry for help? and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you look idly, or why do you idly look at wrong? We hear his complaint. What's he complaining about? Largely what he's complaining about is the violence and the injustice that's taking place in the covenant community. And he's saying, Lord, why don't you do something? And then the Lord blows his mind. He answers him. We get the Lord's answer. And in verse 6, look how the Lord answers. He says, well, in essence, he says, I am doing something. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Who are the Chaldeans? They're the Babylonians. I'm raising up a bunch of Babylonians. That bitter and hasty nation, verse 6, who marched through the breadth of the earth to, sweet, to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. What a wealth of what a wealth of nuggets we have there. And then Habakkuk he, he answers the Lord with a second complaint. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, "You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he?" What is Habakkuk saying? It's poetic, but what is he saying? He's saying, Lord, how can you punish your people with a people who are more wicked than your people? You do have to scratch your head there, don't you? And how does the Lord answer that? Look at chapter 2, verse 4, the second part of it. You've heard this many times. He says, the righteous shall live by his faith. This could be translated another way. It could be translated this way. By faith, the righteous shall live. By faith, the righteous shall live. I've always leaned towards that second translation. I think that's the translation. I think it's a, it's a, it's a good translation of, of Romans chapter 1 as well, Romans 16 and 17, where the, Paul cites this passage. Now let's take this back to Jacob. What should Jacob be doing? Back in Genesis 34, we're living by faith. Okay, what's that look like in terms of the violation of his daughter? Well, God has ordained, he's ordained the church, he's ordained government. We learn that from Romans 14. Governments are of God, churches of God. What is the role of government? The role of government is to bring justice to this very thing. That's the role of government. 
Now, if we take that back to Jacob, now what's Jacob going to get out of that? Well, it's the government that's doing it. The prince of the land is the one who has violated his daughter. See, I wouldn't expect a lot of help from City Hall. City Hall's in on it. And that is often the case. So when a lower court will not handle something properly, what do we do? We take it to a higher court, right? In our minds, where do we go? When injustice, when injustice is prevailing, where do we go in our minds? Well, we go to the highest court. By faith, we look to the judge with a capital J. And with the psalmist, we say, Oh Lord, how long? How long? Because the psalmist, this is what the psalmist do all through the Psalter, isn't it? When they decry injustice, who do they decry injustice to? They, dec- they decry injustice to the Lord. By faith, the righteous shall live. By looking to the Lord. There may be a delay in the justice, but you can be rest assured that justice is on its way because God is just. Now, how should we look at this? Well, we should start by looking to the judge and recognize that justice may be delayed, but justice is on the way. But we need to go to another step We need to take another step and we need to look to the cross because it's at the cross where justice and mercy meet, isn't it? That's where justice and mercy meets, where Jesus takes the penalty of the sins whom he has come to save upon himself so that his justice could be satisfied, so that those wrongs could be atoned for. And the third thing that we need to do, the third thing we need to do is recollect and reappraise ourselves of the mercy that we have received from God at the cross. That's how we handle this. Retaliation, deceit, carnal rage, acting like it didn't happen, that's all unjust. We can't handle injustice with injustice, can we? God handles injustice with justice perfectly. That's the answer. But oh, to carry that out, to carry that out. Now, where is God in this? Let me say a couple words about that and one last thought and I'll close. Where is God in this? Where is He's not mentioned in this. And as I've mentioned in the book of Esther, God is never mentioned. But God is everywhere in the book of Esther. Just because He is not mentioned in verse 34 does not mean that he is not in, or I'm sorry, chapter 34, does not mean that he's not in chapter 34. He's everywhere. And where is he? He's in there with his long suffering and his patience and his covenant faithfulness. Look at the people of God, the patriarchs. Jacob is failing to lead his family spiritually, isn't he? In terms of leading his family, it is abysmal. I told you there's a lot of parenting lessons here, but they're all negative. This is a this is a this really is a a document here and what not to do. What not to do. Had Jacob taken his family to Bethel, don't think we'd have Genesis 34. So the, the indictment for us as fathers is to take our children to Bethel. Which is exactly what Cody has done with Linus this morning. 
He has brought Linus to Bethel. What does Bethel mean? The house of God. It's so very important to be leading. It's so very important to be leading spiritually. And here we see Jacob is not doing it. And we can't be, you know, I was thinking of a title. What do I do with this? What do we, anybody want to help me with a title on this? The title that I have chosen came to me yesterday as I was wrestling with this. The title I chose for this is Asleep at the Wheel. Jacob is asleep at the wheel, isn't he? And, and before we get too tough on, on Jacob, before we get too tough on him, let's think of all the times we've been asleep at the wheel. You know, one last thought on parenting in terms of Shechem. You know, Shechem is this guy that gets whatever he wants whenever he wants it, does whatever he wants, and there's no consequences for his sin. You know, I've been thinking about that, and I don't, I don't want to close until I, I, I say one more thing about that. You know, there's so much of that going on in our culture, isn't there? Where children want this, they do this, they do that. There's very little consequences for what they do, what they want. We give them what they want. And, and what, what's happening is we're, we're raising a bunch of Shechems. I might sound old-fashioned. And if you think I sound old-fashioned, you know, so be it. But it's not good to give kids everything they want when they want it. It's not. Uh, it, it's not wise. It's not good. Um, if you think I'm old-fashioned, then listen to this. I don't want to embarrass my parents. But I wanted a guitar. And I saved. It took me an hour, a year and a half to get enough money for a guitar. Like a little guitar and a little amp. And I went out, they had no idea. None of us knew anything about guitars. I went out to this store and they see me come in and they sold me a guitar that was unplayable. I was a year and a half saving up for that. And I got a guitar that couldn't even be played. I didn't know the difference. I didn't know how to play it. Year and a half. Wasted. Well, could my parents have bought me that guitar? Yeah, sure they could have. But they didn't. And I don't want to embarrass them because they're here. But it was incredibly wise that they didn't. It was so wise that they had me save up for it. And I was thinking about this this morning. I wouldn't be standing here if it weren't for that wisdom. Do you think church planning is something that happens right away? Oh, Lord, uh, give me this church. Bring this church and bring all these people in here and do all this. Just No, that ain't going to happen. Church planning is a lot like planting an orchard, not a garden. Gardens happen pretty quick. It's like planting an orchard. There's a difference. Orchards have trees in them. It takes a long time to, to raise trees. You don't just stick a seed in the ground, walk away, and come back that afternoon and expect to find a peach. And you say, Lord, give me a peach. Well, I will in a few years. A few years. How are we ever going to be prepared for life if we're getting everything we want when we want it? And how are we ever going to respect anything that we get if we're getting it when we want it and we're getting it now? Call me old-fashioned if you want. But if I wasn't old-fashioned, I wouldn't be standing here. I think we could use a little old-fashionedness in our culture. Okay, I'll quit. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, oh Lord, what a difficult chapter we come to, oh Father, with all these lessons that are largely in the negative. And oh Father, we have to get to chapter 35 and perhaps we should have just went to 35 this morning that we could end on a much more positive note. But oh Father, I think we all understand these things and I think we all strive for these things. And oh Father, as the people of God, as as your chosen ones, oh Father, we do pray and we, we pray, Father, you would fill our hearts, oh Lord, with wisdom, especially those who are fathers here this morning. Oh Lord, help us to first forgive us when we've been asleep at the wheel. As we look at Jacob's performance, Father, we recognize that there's times when we're simply asleep at the wheel. Jacob here is asleep at the wheel. Oh Father, forgive us for those times. And oh, Father, wake us up. May Genesis 34, which was an obscure passage as we walked in this morning, now may become a passage of strength for us, as a warning to us. They will see what not to do. Especially those of us who are fathers, may we look to this always and see this is not what we want to do. We do not want to do things like Jacob did them. We do not want to do things like Jacob's sons has done them. We do not want to raise kids who are like Shechem, who get whatever they want, whenever they want it, and there's no consequences for what they do. Oh, Father, this raising kids is so difficult. It is so hard, the hardest thing that we do. Oh, Lord, our congregation is full of young fathers, and our congregation so wonderfully is becoming more and more full of children. Oh, Lord, help us to never be found asleep at the wheel. But, oh, Father, lastly, we, we thank you and praise you for your long-suffering and your mercy and your grace. For, oh, Lord, you are very much there and working. And, oh, Father, we thank you that your covenant promises are not compromised by Genesis 34. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.